Welcome back to the story of, I'm Reagan Snyder, and this is the story of Charles Manson, part three. my last episode, I left off with a couple of the girls from the Manson family taken off with Dennis Wilson. And Dennis Wilson was part of the Beach Boys. And the Beach Boys were crazy popular in the 60s. And I don't care who you are, their music holds up today. God Only Knows is one of the best songs on the planet. And because the Beach Boys were so popular, you know Charlie was going to give these girls, it was Pat and Yeller, were their names slash nicknames, who brought Dennis Wilson to him, you know he was going to give them extra good marks or extra LSD or extra whatever they wanted because they hooked him up. Dennis was the drummer for the Beach Boys and he was kind of the black sheep of the band. He had no self-discipline and he just got into whatever sounded fun in that moment. He was into instant gratification. Didn't matter what the consequences were, he was into it. So you can imagine how annoyed his bandmates were with him, especially at the height of their fame when they're in the public eye and they're trying to, it sounds like a lot of, a big balancing act. So when you have somebody like that in the group, that's tough. When Pat and Yeller got back to Dennis's place, he followed through on his promise and he gave them milk and cookies and they all chatted for a while and that was that. And while they were talking, the girls told Dennis all about Charlie. They're like, we know this amazing guy. He's so smart. He is wise beyond his years. So Dennis is just listening and hearing all about Charles Manson. And after a while, Dennis was like, well, I got to get going because he had a recording session. And as he walked them out, he told them that he hoped to run into him again. And the girls didn't know who he was. They just thought he was some nice guy with milk and cookies at his house. But Charlie knew exactly who he was. And when he found out that Patton Yeller met Dennis Wilson and went to his house, he was like, you have to take me there. And everybody else needs to come too. So they did that because Charlie was the boss. And there was one night when Dennis was out late and he pulled up into his driveway It was like after midnight and he looks at his house and he sees the lights are on inside. I mean, for me, I'd be like, what? I'd have my phone out and ready. You know, that meme of that guy holding the phone up like he's about to tell on somebody. That would be me. I would have been so scared, but not Dennis. He walked up into the house, walked in and there's Charlie making himself at home. He's there. He's smiling and he's waving at Dennis like he owns the place, like he was welcoming a guest into his home and Dennis was obviously shocked and confused and didn't know what to make of it and but Charlie was small he was a a small man small in stature but remember he had crazy eyes anyway his whole aura and demeanor was unnerving to Dennis and for some reason that didn't scare him out of his house instead Dennis asked Charlie if he was gonna hurt him and Charlie was like oh come on, Dennis, do I look like I'm going to hurt you? And then he dropped to the floor and he started kissing Dennis's feet. (sighs) What would you do in that situation? (laughs) 
I truly can't tell you what I would do in that situation. So I guess Dennis was cool with it and just started hanging out with him. The rest of the group was there. They had all made themselves at home. Some of the girls were dancing topless to some Beatles songs. And Dennis was like, all right, maybe that's why he was cool with it, with it, because there were girls without shirts on at his house. And so he's like, all right, this is my kind of party. And I don't even have to leave my house for it. Cool. So they party all night. And the next morning, everybody was still there and they were showing no signs of leaving. And Dennis was like, okay, cool. Like these girls put out, I'm into it. And over the next few days, Dennis and Charlie had lots of conversations to the point that Dennis was like, wow, this guy is deep. During one point in their conversation, Dennis felt especially seen and understood because Charlie explained to him that parents ruin their children. And Dennis was like, actually, I think you're right because my dad beat me growing up and he was terrible. And so in that moment, I think he was like, oh, yeah, Charlie knows what he's talking about. And so he's sold on him. Dennis is sold on Charlie and he cannot wait to introduce him to his friends and his bandmates and his whoever because he was a genius with lots of wisdom to share. Dennis took Charlie over to the Brother Records offices so that he could audition, but there, no one else there was impressed by him. Charlie had made a terrible first impression. He acted like he owned the place and on top of that, he needed a shower. He was filthy and he smelled. They could smell him from the elevator. And meanwhile, the little credibility that Dennis had was diminishing even more. But Charlie had no intention of leaving Dennis alone. Even though things didn't go well at Brother Records, he's like, not going to leave Dennis alone. So they were just kind of crashing at Dennis's place, making themselves at home. They would go back and forth to Spawn Ranch for a couple days at a time, but they always came back to Dennis's. But Charlie made it a point to stay close to Dennis. And the people in Brother Records' office couldn't believe that Dennis was allowing it. They were like, how do you not see this for what it is? Why are you letting him around you? So they decided to take it upon themselves. They ran a background check on Charlie. And they found out that he had a record. He had done hard time. He had been in prison. He had all sorts of... a checkered past. And when they told Dennis about this, he was like excited about it. He's like, cool. To him, it made Charlie even more interesting. But after a while, Charlie had been hanging out with Dennis. Like he just really wiggled his way into Dennis's life and was there whether Dennis liked it or not, which he did apparently, but nothing came of it. He still hadn't been signed to a label and so Charlie was like, all right, I guess I'm going to have to find somebody further further up the ladder because this isn't working. At this time, Terry Melcher was one of the most powerful people in American music, and he was really young. He was the son of Doris Day, and he made his mark in the music industry when he was 22 years old, when he went to go work for Columbia Records as a producer. And lots of people thought that he was able to get into that role because his mom was Doris Day and she owned a lot of stock in the company. But you know what? Good for him, I guess. Whatever. He was in it and he was doing well. And so now Terry's 26 at this time that, that Charlie's in the picture with uh, Dennis. And he's dating... Candy Bergen, the actress, and 
He liked hanging out with his friends and being social, but he was very big on keeping his business and his social life separate from each other. Charlie was like, oh yeah, Terry Melcher. Yeah, this will be easy. It'll be easy to get signed by him, especially because Dennis is friends with him. And then there's Greg Jacobson, who Terry Melcher had hired to find new talent. And so these three guys, Greg Jacobson, Terry Melcher, and Dennis Wilson were all friends and they hung out together a lot. And when they met Charlie and got to know him and his group, they liked him. They thought it was fun. They liked the girls. They thought Charlie was pretty cool. He's kind of weird, but he's pretty cool. So, I mean, cool enough to hang out with, I guess. Greg Jacobson knew Terry pretty well and he knew that Charlie's best bet would be if Terry got to know Charlie first before he brought up auditioning or music or whatever, getting signed to a label. And so when Charlie met Terry Melcher, he turned on the charm, but Terry wasn't one to fall for it. He wasn't instantly impressed like so many people were. And so Charlie's like, okay, I need to, I need to go about this a different way. And he figured out that Terry had his eye on Ruth Ann Morehouse, the prettiest girl in the Manson family. And as soon as he found out that Terry was into Ruth Ann, he set them up. He was like, here's my best offering. Please accept it. But even that didn't work. Terry was just almost impossible to get close to. So Charlie spent his time getting closer to Dennis and they talked about writing music together. And he just kind of tried to keep his, his goal, his eye on the prize. And through Dennis and Greg Jacobson, Charlie ended up meeting a bunch of people in LA in the music scene through them. And he would offer his tapes up to anyone willing to listen who might help him get signed. But nobody was really interested in him. One day, while Dennis was out hitchhiking, that was a thing in the 60s. If you were there in the 60s, tell us about the hitchhiking scene because it seemed like everybody did it, at least in LA. So Dennis Wilson's out hitchhiking and he gets picked up by this 21-year-old guy from Texas named Charles Watson. And Watson had left Texas for LA and he got by working in a wig shop and he was excited to be invited back to Dennis Wilson's place. And when he got there, Charlie and his group were there and they made a very big impression on Charles Watson. Charlie seemed to have everything that Watson wanted. He had women, drugs, he had this guilt-free philosophy. He was into it. He wanted to be part of it. And Charlie liked Watson too. He was everything that Charlie wanted in a male follower. And after very minimal persuasion, Charles Watson, who would also be known later on as Tex, joined the group. And do you remember Dean Morehouse? I think I talked about him in the last episode. He's Ruth Ann's dad. Well, he shows up out of nowhere and he wants to join the group because they've got girls and drugs. And Charlie, as weird as Charlie is, even Charlie's like, no, that's weird. You're Ruth Ann's dad. But they would let him hang around with just enough contact with girls to keep him running their errands. They're like, yeah, here's just a little bit. Now go run this errand for us. Go. And, and he did. But he never joined the family. He was never admitted to the family. 
And money-wise, they were doing great because Dennis was taking care of them. He had lots of money. He was part of the Beach Boys, and he didn't seem to mind paying for stuff for them. And they were just like the biggest toe-steppers in all the land. So the women would raid Dennis's closet and cut up his clothes so that they could make robes for Charlie. And Dennis would pay for all of their doctor's appointments for their STD treatments, which were running rampant in their group. And Dennis just dealt with it because he was like, eh, Charlie's interesting. The girls are fun. That's, this is fine. But after a while, Charlie decided that since they were a family, they, need to, they needed to find a permanent home. They knew they couldn't stay with Dennis forever. They needed to settle down and plant some roots. And so that became Charlie's next order of business. So he sent Susan Atkins, who at this point is in the middle of a pregnancy, to lead, like, lead a group of some of the others back up to Mendocino County to look around for something. And they did find something in a, a small town north of San Francisco called Philo. Philo. I've never heard of this place. I don't know. And so they rented a place and they started kind of moving in, but there were parents who were starting to complain to the police that their kids were being given drugs by women who lived in what neighbors called the quote unquote hippie house. And police, I mean, they're getting calls all over the place. So they follow up on one particular call and they find this woman's 17 year old son having these violent drug induced hallucinations at the hippie house. So Susan, Mary, Yeller, and Pat, and a few others were arrested on drug charges. And their baby, who was with them, they called him Pooh Bear, he was put in foster care. So Charlie gets word back in L.A. about what's going on. And he's like, Ugh. he's like the dad of the group. I got to bail these kids out. And he had to figure out how to rescue them all. But he needed to stick around L.A., though, because he needed to keep working on Dennis and Greg Jacobson to get him to Terry and talk him into signing him to a label. So, you know, first things first. So Charlie calls his old buddy Bobby Beausoleil to handle it. And he's like, okay, he was driving up and down the coast kind of aimlessly, him and his three women. So they drive out to take care of business. And one of the women with him was an 18-year-old named Leslie Van Houten. And Leslie had grown up pretty comfortably in an L.A. suburb called Monrovia. But when she was 14, her parents got divorced and it just it kind of uprooted her stability and, and it fed into this rebellious side of her. And she was a very intelligent person, but she was an average student. She just I think she was just distracted. Leslie was the type of girl who liked to question authority all the time. She got big into sex and drugs at a very early age. And when she was 17, she ran away to the hate with her boyfriend. And when they got there, it was not what they expected. It, the streets were completely overcrowded. There were a lot of very hard drugs, very hostile people, and they were like not into it. So they're kind of driven out of there and they went back to Monrovia. And when they got back, Leslie found out that she was pregnant. And she planned on keeping the baby. She wanted to have the baby, but her mom pushed her into an abortion. And this caused Leslie to become more resentful toward her mom, toward her parents, her life. And so after she graduated from secretarial school, 
She left for San Francisco again with her friend Dee, who was trying to reconcile a marriage, her marriage, I think. So while they're in San Francisco, Dee meets Bobby Beausoleil at a party, and she brought him home, and so that's how Leslie met him. And they all decided that they're going to head out on another aimless road trip down the coast. And Leslie's like, yeah, cool, I'll come with you. (laughs) But she had kind of a a fork in the road moment because they were all loading up. And before she got in the car, they didn't realize she wasn't in the car and they took off. And she's like, oh, they forgot me. Um, What do I do now? Maybe I'll wait here. Should I not go? And then they realized and they came back and she made the split decision like, yeah, I am going to go with them. And this kind of set her on this crazy path. One of the girls on the trip with them was named Gypsy. And she kept suggesting to Leslie that they should leave to go be with this guy named Charlie. He's way cooler than Bobby. Leslie didn't know about Charlie. She'd never heard of him. She'd never met him. So when Charlie called on Bobby to help him out, Leslie got a glimpse of him in passing. And she's like, what is Gypsy talking about? He didn't seem special to her. She didn't understand why Gypsy was so into him. So she's like, whatever, kind of brushes it off. And after they found out that there wasn't anything that they could do to help the family members who were in jail, Leslie left with Bobby and the other girls and they stayed together. Eventually, some of the people that were in jail, they were sentenced to time served. Mary Bruner eventually regained custody of her baby, Pooh Bear, who was in foster care, and they carried on. And things back with Bobby weren't that great. Leslie was just growing more and more unhappy with him and being with him and doing whatever he wanted to do. And as time went on, Leslie was like, "Uh, maybe Gypsy's right. Maybe I will let her talk, talk me into joining the Manson family. Meanwhile, things were not going great on Charlie's journey to find fame. Charlie was one of those people who fascinated people at first, but over time his sense of self-importance and entitlement would drive people away. And as a result of this, he, he just exuded offensive behavior, kind of a lot. And this started to push Dennis Wilson away, and Charlie sensed that he was losing control of Dennis. Dennis did what he could do to help Charlie achieve his dreams of becoming a rock, a rock star, but, you know, he could only do so much. It's It wasn't his fault that people just weren't really impressed with Charlie and his music, at least enough to offer him a record deal. And instead of being grateful, Charlie just kept demanding more and more, and he expected Terry Melcher, Greg Jacobson, and Dennis, Dennis Wilson to view him as their equal. And he just, you know, they were far, far more successful than Charlie was. And he was just kind of off-putting. He was just, he was that guy. They had been nice enough to invite him along to a few parties and clubs, but Charlie always found a way to make himself the center of attention. And those traits initially were intriguing to them and kind of funny and entertaining, but now they're just off-putting. And for some reason, this made Dennis feel guilty. And so he arranged for Charlie to do some recording at his brother Brian's home studio. He got Stephen Despar, who had built the studio, 
and worked on some of the Beach Boys albums to run the session for him. And Brian Wilson did not want anything to do with Charlie. When he came, he didn't even leave his room to greet him. Brian's wife, Marilyn, was kind of grossed out by them. And Susan Atkins in particular. They were just very unkempt and dirty. And it was so bad that after they left, Marilyn scrubbed the toilets in her house with disinfectant. (laughs) And... Surprise, surprise, the recording session was a disaster because Charlie wouldn't take instruction at all. He even ignored, like, like the warnings that his guitar was out of tune. He's like, oh, you can't tell me. So when Stephen Despar decided that he had heard enough, Charlie pulled a knife. And so Despar walked out and, he's, and he said, quote, this guy is psychotic. At the end of the summer that year, the Beach Boys left for a brief tour and Charlie and the family stayed at Dennis's house while he was gone. He was fine with it for whatever reason. Like, what are these decisions, Dennis? When he got home from tour, he was called into the Brother, Brother Records office by their accountants, and he demand, they demanded to know how he could have possibly ran up an $800 Altadino dairy bill while he'd been gone. And, you know, of course it wasn't him. It was Charlie and the family. And when Dennis found out about it, he was pissed off. And when Dennis added everything up, their stay at his house while he was gone that summer had cost him $100,000 plus, including a Mercedes that someone in the family had totaled. So Dennis is over at this point. He's like, these people are crazy. They have cost me so much money. But he understood that Charlie was a scary dude. He couldn't just cut ties with him. And plus, he, he still liked most of the girls. So instead of confronting the situation head on with Charlie, he let the lease expire on on his house. It was almost up. So he's like, okay, I'm just going to let the lease expire and the landlord can deal with it. So a few weeks before it expired and he had to be out, he packed up some of his essential things and he moved to, to a new house or a new place with, um, without telling Charlie. And he made sure that the place he moved to would be too small for the family to stay when they did inevitably find out where he went. So when the landlord tossed Charlie and the family out, they gathered up whatever they could from the house. I guess Dennis left a bunch of stuff behind and they headed back to Spawn Ranch. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Charlie figured that he could convince the ranch owner, George Spawn, to let them live there if they kept the movie set that was on property clean and in good repair for the paying customers who came by to see it. Because he would have, you know, he just made a little extra money doing that. And Charlie, remember, he had experience with horses from working at a racetrack back in Virginia. And he thought that he could be a good ranch hand and the girls could do some housekeeping for George. And so George was like, yeah, that sounds good. 
So Charlie appointed Lynn to be George's main quote-unquote housekeeper. And Lynn would also become known by everybody as Squeaky around that time. And what started as 18 members of the family moving onto the ranch, that grew to 35 people within a few months. So this poor guy, George Spawn, who's mostly blind, has, you know, he agreed to 18 people to live there. Now they're up to 35 plus people. And there were some people that were already staying on the ranch when Charlie and the group came, but the Manson family drove the others out so that they could have their pick of the best shacks on the property. And Charlie was happy at the ranch. He liked it because it was isolated enough that he could maintain his influence over his members, but it wasn't so far that they didn't have access to anything. Whenever Charlie wasn't preaching to him, he was putting him to work to keep them too busy and too tired to think about anything too much. Some of the members would drive into L.A. and go dumpster diving for food. Every day, he had his people that they were in charge of going and finding food for the day. And Charlie continued recruiting people to join the family. And he had his screening process down to a science by this point. He would interrogate any newcomer about their money situation, first and foremost, right? they they got to get money somewhere, and they're not going to work for it. Please, what are they, peasants? If they were admitted into the fold, they were to be under a veteran family member's supervision for a while. And the ones that they knew weren't going to be accepted into the family, they would just keep them around long enough until they bled them dry of whatever they had. Their credit card was maxed out, just whatever. They would just use them until they didn't need them anymore. They made a good chunk of the money that they did bring in by panhandling, and they were required to give whatever they got panhandling to Charlie immediately so that they couldn't afford to sneak away. They didn't have money to call family or friends from a payphone. Like he had a big old fat thumb over his family members. By this point, Gypsy and Leslie Van Houten were done with Bobby Beausoleil. They broke away from him and they joined the Manson family. Gypsy was in her late 20s, and she was a little older than most of the members, but she was highly devoted to Charlie and his instructions. She turned out to be a very good leader for him. And Leslie was more intelligent than Charlie usually liked his members to be, but she was attractive, and that was enough for Charlie, because he knew it would help attract more men into the fold. So Leslie was assigned to follow Charlie around to write down song lyrics that he came up with. (laughs) And days at Spawn Ranch for them were mostly made up of chores, farm ranch stuff, family meals, family LSD trips, and Charlie preaching that he was Jesus reincarnated and making them listen to him and his guitar. And he always sang the same crap. He always either sang his own songs or Beatles songs from the Magical Mystery Tour album. The women cooked. And men had first dibs, they ate first, and the women would get whatever was left. Charlie kept them under his control with weird little exercises and a lot of chastising and praising. Like, he knew how much he could knock each member down before breaking them, and then he'd build them back up. It was mind games. By now, Susan Atkins had given birth to a baby boy, and she named him Zizo Z. <laughs> I can't even say it. Zizo ZC Zadfrak because 
quote, it seemed like a good name. And he was taken to live separate from his mother with the other baby who they called Pooh Bear. And Charlie's biggest, most unbendable rule was that these kids would not be ruined by their parents. And so everybody was going to raise them, not just one or two people. Clocks, calendars, watches, anything used to tell time was forbidden. He told his followers that he wanted everyone to focus on the present moment. They didn't need clocks and all that. And glasses. Glasses weren't allowed either. Whatever the state of someone's vision was the natural way that person should see the rest of the world. And only natural things were good, like LSD. Books also were not allowed on the ranch. Anything they needed to know would come from Charlie. Dennis Wilson finally gets rid of these guys, right? But he would still show up at the ranch occasionally to hang out with the girls. He couldn't get enough of the girls. And he would give them a little money here and there where he felt like they needed it. And during one visit, Dennis told Charlie that the Beach Boys were planning to record Charlie's song called Cease to Exist. And this isn't exactly what Charlie had in mind, but he recognized this for the opportunity that it was, and he knew that fame was on the horizon for him. This belief wasn't reinforced when Terry Melcher made a few visits to the ranch too, and Charlie so graciously offered Rufan up to him when he did visit. He loved to use women. He loved to use them. However, they benefited him. He would use them to impress whichever quote-unquote outsider men he wanted something from, and he saved what he thought were the pretty girls for VIP visitors. This is so gross. The men were allowed to pick out whichever girl he wanted, and the girl had to do anything that he told her, and if they refused or they seemed kind of standoffish, Charlie would punish her, and sometimes the punishments were making her strip naked to be ridiculed in front of everybody. Bill Kaufman, I don't know if you remember him, he was Charlie's prison buddy that hooked him up with that guy from Universal Studios. He came to visit the ranch and everybody was cold to him because his connections at Universal had not panned out for Charlie. So he wasn't interested in him anymore. He didn't want to associate with him anymore. He couldn't offer him anything. So when the Beach Boys were preparing to record Seas to Exist, they, they reworked it. They changed the music They changed the lyrics, and Dennis changed the title to Never Learn Not to Love, and it did end up on their album, and Dennis listed himself as the sole composer on the credits, and it was intentional, like he, this was a jab at Charlie, because he was still pissed about all the money that the Manson family had cost him that summer that he was gone. And more recently, while he was visiting Spawn Ranch, Charlie suggested to one of the men in his group that he take Dennis's Ferrari out for a little spin, and he did, and he totaled it. So it's like, my gosh, on every level. So taking credit for Charlie's stupid song was basically payback for Dennis. By now, the family had grown to nearly 40 people, and Charlie felt like he needed to get further away from civilization just to keep control over them and play his mind games and make sure they're not doing anything he wouldn't be be happy about. And he had a place in mind. It was called Myers Ranch, and it was deep in Death Valley. It took hours to get there from L.A. You take the highway there, and then you had to go through this rough, these rough backcountry roads. And Charlie went out there to check it out, but 
while he was out there, he was drawn to another property. It sat adjacent to Myers Ranch, and it was called Barker Ranch. And it had two stone houses, a shed, and a small pool that provided their water. And the main house had a, a wood stove, a bathroom, and a shower with a sink. It was very primitive, and it seemed very far removed from modern civilization. And Charlie was like, perfect. So he got into contact with the property owner. Her name was Arlene Barker, and he told her he was an important musician. And he's like, hey, I just need some solitude. I'm working on some new material. I am very important. And to prove this claim, he gave her one of the gold Beach Boy records that he'd stolen from Dennis's house before they moved out. And Arlene was like, okay. So Charlie and most of the family moved into Barker Ranch. He left some of the members back at Spawn Ranch just to kind of keep one foot in over there. But as it turns out, Barker Ranch sucked and the family wasn't happy and they complained a lot. It was in the middle of the desert. It was blistering hot. They were hundreds of miles from anything, and on top of the heat, they had to do all the cooking had to be done on a wood stove. So they would have to go out into the heat, chop wood, and then work by this fire in the desert heat. It sounds like the seventh circle of hell. But to keep them in line, Charlie warned his followers that things in the outside world were about to turn really bad, and people like them would be targets. And they were very lucky that they were with Charlie, but it just wasn't going to work. Food became a problem quickly because they were used to going into LA to grocery store dumpsters and finding whatever they needed. And now they weren't close enough to anything or anywhere to scrounge anything from any dumpster. At one point, it got so bad that Charlie told the girls to spread out through, through the desert and search for edible plants. But they're like, Charlie, we don't know anything about edible plants. And he's like, okay, that's not going to work. He tried sending some of the girls to Vegas, which was the closest town to them, to Panhandle. But their success there was limited. And Charlie knew that he could not let the members spend much time there because Vegas was full of temptation. And on top of that, where were they going to get their drugs? He knew pretty quickly that they were going to have to go back to Spawn. But he had just finished convincing his followers that Barker was where it's at and that's where they needed to be. And he didn't want to shake their faith in him, so he needed an out. And he ended up finding that out through Dennis Wilson. Never Learn Not to Love ended up doing pretty well, and it was possible that future collaborations with Charlie could result in more of an income. So around Thanksgiving time, Dennis and Greg Jacobson drove out to Barker Ranch to tell... Charlie the news and Charlie was so happy about it on a couple levels because a cool like my song's doing well and we can make more money great and b this was his out to get back to Spawn Ranch and the way he presented it to his followers it he didn't even use Dennis's like Dennis's out he said that Death Valley winters were just as brutal as the summers were. And so they needed to get back to LA out of consideration for everybody's health. He was going to take them back to Spawn Ranch. And everybody was happy. They were so glad to get out of there, except there were a few members who he assigned to stay so that nobody else could take their place in in case they wanted it back or whatever. And Charlie thinks everything's all fine and good. He's going to slide right back into Spawn Ranch. But 
George Spawn was like, nah, nah, you can't stay here. He thought the play- they made the place look bad. And so Charlie's like, well, crap. Now what? He had enough money to rent a place for a couple months, and he found a two-story house on Gresham Street in Canoga Park, just above Topanga. And they moved in, but Charlie was having a harder time keeping the family busy in this house. There was no ranch work to be done. But then the Beatles, his saviors, came out with a new album. It was self-titled, but the album cover was all white. And this was a drastic change from their former album covers. And so it quickly became universally known as the White Album. For Charlie, the Beatles songs were the Bible. And Charlie gathered the family together and had them listen to the White Album. He's like, you guys have to hear this. There's so much insight there. These are our directions. This is what we have to do. Pay special attention to the songs Piggies, Blackbird, Revolution 1, Revolution 9, and Helter Skelter. Like, these were musical roadmaps to their immediate future. And they were very important. And he informed the family that Piggies was about the self sense of self-entitlement that rich and powerful people had. Blackbird predicted the uprising of downtrodden blacks. Revolution 1 was a call to arms. Revolution 9 was a bunch of sound bites with like machine guns and screaming, which to Charlie represented the, com- the coming violence and fury. And Helter Skelter was the official name of the chaos that was on its way. Charlie told the family that they should feel so proud that the Beatles directed this their whole album towards them. Just them. Like, how lucky is that? And me- you know, meanwhile, the Beatles are peeing in solid gold toilets and eating frittatas that their home chefs made. They don't, they don't know. Between the book of Revelation in the Bible and the Beatles' White Album, Charlie knew that there would soon be an uprising of the most oppressed people in the world, mostly black people, and Helter Skelter would set off the battle. The blacks would kill off most of the whites and enslave their surviving oppressors, and Charlie would take the family to a bottomless pit where they'd stay while the world descended into madness and chaos, and the family was going to grow to 144,000 people. Then the blacks would discover that they weren't smart or organized enough to run the world, and the Manson family would emerge from their bottomless pit and be acknowledged as rulers. Most of the family ate up the steaming pile of horse shite, but Tex Watson was starting to feel a little claustrophobic. So he snuck away from the family. He stayed in the L.A. area. He dealt drugs to get by. And now that the family was distracted by Helter Skelter, Charlie turned his attention back to music. He's like, okay, where was I? When he learned that Cease to Exist was completely changed and Dennis took the credit, he lost his mind. He exploded. It didn't matter that Dennis had tried to help him and was so generous with him. He was a traitor and he wasn't to be trusted. But he knew that he couldn't go off on Dennis because he was still trying to get in with Terry Melcher. And Dennis was one of Terry's best friends. And Charlie was smart in a lot of ways, but he was too stupid to realize that Terry was using him to get to Rufan. And on top of that, Terry became distracted by a personal dilemma. So this just wasn't going to work out for Charlie. 
Terry's stepfather, Marty, had died earlier that year and left Terry's mom, Doris Day, in a financial pickle. During their marriage, she let Marty take control of all financial matters. She had no involvement in any of it. She'd made the movies. He handled the money. So after he died, Doris asked Terry to make sure that all of her her finances were in order And they were horrified to learn that Marty and his business partner had completely squandered all of her money away. It was so bad that she was in deep debt and she owed in taxes. And she knew that if word spread that Doris Day was broke, producers would start throwing lowball offers her way. So now Terry's dealing with his mom's money stuff and her reputation and to protect as much of of his mother's property as possible Terry and Candyberg and his girlfriend moved from their house on Cielo to one of Doris Day's beach houses. And they're just laying low. Charlie had no clue that he'd moved. He was laying low and it was almost impossible to get into contact with him for Charlie at this point. Rudy Altabelli, who owned the home on Cielo Drive, where Terry and Candy had been staying, he lived in the guest cottage on the property and he this setup it worked well it was like this whole setup and so now he's got to fill the house and he doesn't want to leave it empty too long but he needs somebody who's gonna he needs the right tenant and somebody who's gonna let him stay in the guest cottage on property well Roman Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate had recently come into some success through one of his movies Rosemary's Baby that they did together and they figured they needed to be based in LA. So when they learned about this yellow house, they were interested in it, especially because they just found out that Sharon was pregnant. So they just wanted somewhere that they could settle down and have their baby and start building on their family. So Polanski contacted Altabelli and he told him that that sounds great. I stay in the guest cottage. If that's cool with you, you're welcome to rent the house. And three days later, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate moved into the house on Cielo Drive. It was mid-February 1969 by this point. Around this time, Charlie and the family were finally able to convince old man Spawn to let them live there. And in the meantime, they were stocking supplies to take with them back out to Barker Ranch for when Helter Skelter went down. And Charlie started conducting these desert survival courses with his family members. Everyone was instructed to carry a knife with them wherever they went, like a, a pocket knife. Charlie started acquiring as many guns as he could, but he never suggested to anybody that they're going to attack anybody. This was just like a defense thing if it became necessary. When they went back to the desert, it would be in dune buggies. And so they started acquiring dune buggies. They would either trade them or they'd just steal them. And around this time, Tex Watson decided to rejoin the family. He missed the discipline of it. He thought that Charlie preached about really important things, so he came back, and Charlie forgave him pretty easily because he needed Texas skills as a mechanic for the dune buggies. To make money, Charlie sent the girls out to have them sign on as as topless dancers, but none of the topless dancer place managers wanted them because they thought they were too flat-chested. So Charlie's like, all right, well, I'm going to send them up to Sacramento to work for my buddy Peter's whorehouses. But then he's like, no, that won't work because Pete's going to want a big cut and I need all the money. So that's not going to work. 
So he decided that he would turn one of the buildings on the ranch into a nightclub. They painted the walls with some psychedelic designs. They named it Helter Skelter because, of course, they did. And things went well for a few days until George Spawn was charged by police with operating a bar without a license. And it was on him to pay the $1,500 fine. And he was pissed off. So Charlie's like, oh my gosh, the answer has been right in front of my face this whole time. Dealing drugs, duh. So he and some bikers called the Straight Satans formed this alliance to run this drug business. Dennis, Terry, and Greg still came out to the ranch from time to time. But it was decided that Charlie just really had no real potential as a recording artist. But Greg thought that Charlie and the family would make great subjects for a documentary. He needed to get some funding together, but he wanted to present the family as the ultimate commune that you in that you could live however you wanted if you were invented inventive enough but charlie disagreed with this vision he's like no charlie wanted to be shown as a badass outlaw who courageously defied authority and got away with it so they're just having creative differences while they were waiting for helter skelter to go down there was a lot of nervous energy in the family and so they decided to put this energy into what Charlie called creepy crawling. They would quietly break into random homes at night and they wouldn't really do anything but move things around and then just leave and play these mind games on people. But one day, Charlie got great news. He got word that Terry Melcher would finally be coming to hear him perform one of his songs. So they got the movie set nice and tidy the women were ordered to bake cookies and cakes. Charlie bathed. <laughs> Special occasion. Gotta take a shower. Trimmed his hair. The women put together a shirt and pants made from deer skin. Like they sunned it and stretched it and whatever else you have to do for Charlie to wear. And everything was planned out down to the smallest detail. But Terry Melcher bailed on him. He flaked. He never showed up. Meanwhile, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate were enjoying their new home on Cielo. They're getting all moved in. Polanski was away a lot. Sharon would invite her friends over a lot for dinner just to hang out and for company and whatever. And among her closest friends were Jay Sebring, who was a celebrity hairstylist. And he and Sharon had dated at one point, but they stayed really close friends. A guy named Wojtek Frykowski from Poland and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, whose family owned the Folger Coffee Company. And on March 23rd, 1969, Sharon and a group of her friends were home. And Sharon's friend slash personal photographer, his name was Jerome Hatami, looked out the window and he saw someone walking out on the yard. It was Charlie. He had come to confront Terry for standing him up. And he, he still didn't knew, know that Terry had moved at this point and lived somewhere else now. And so when Hitami approached him, Charlie was like, I'm looking for Terry, Terry Melcher. And he's like, okay, well, I don't know who that is. Uh, maybe he's at the guest house down the way. So Charlie knocks, walks down there and he knocks on the door. And when Rudy answered, Charlie started to introduce himself. But Rudy interrupted him and he's like, I know who you are. Terry has moved. And Rudy was never real impressed with Charlie and the few times that he'd met him. So when Charlie asked her where Terry had moved to, Rudy lied. He's like, I don't know. 
So Charlie leaves. Nothing happens. He tries getting into contact with Terry any way he can think of, but he just was not having any success. Then in April, so like the next month, Furkowski and Abigail Folger moved into the house while Sharon and Roman were overseas. She figured that her friends could keep her company when she came back, when she was really pregnant and couldn't be overseas anymore, and Roman was still gone. During the second week of May, Terry finally responded to Charlie's efforts, and he's like, okay, yeah, I'll come and hear your songs on May 18th. I promise I'll show up. And Charlie knew that nothing would go wrong this time and that he was about to get the fame that he deserved. Stay tuned for the story of Charles Manson, part four. Take care of yourself. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.